Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode features the callous murder of Boleslav Pankorski, a Polish chef in an upmarket restaurant on Soho Square who was murdered by his beleaguered underling, Varnavros Antorka, for quite possibly the pettiest motive ever. And yet this single action almost led to him being tried for double murder. Murder Mile contains upsetting descriptions which may offend sensitive listeners, as well as realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 15, The Almost Double Deaths of the Disgruntled Dishwasher. Today, I'm in Soho Square. Originally called King's Square, Having been erected in the reign of Charles II, Soho Square is an elegant 17th-century tree-lined square nestling in the northeast corner of Soho, between Oxford Street and Old Compton Street, which is ringed by one-way traffic, lined with parked cars, and surrounded by a slew of posh premises for 20th-century Fox, the British Board of Film Classification, St. Patrick's Church, the House of St. Barnabas, and the former home of FIFA, football's governing body, which oddly, as a non-profit organisation, has cash reserves of over $1.4 billion. Mm. In the centre of the square sits a Tudor-style black-and-white timber potting shed, where a slew of diligent groundsmen keep the lawns neat, the flowers perky and the paths leaf-free. In this light and airy garden, which is open to everyone, whether a tweed-suited city trader talking a little too loudly into his phone, a stupidly bearded media twat playing ping-pong over a soya latte, six Soho hobos collapsed in a catatonic puddle of piddle, or a rancid wealth of classic London pigeons, all covered in shit, hobbling on a stump 
and feverishly pecking away at a pub-goer's puke. Ah, lovely London! And yet, little do these sandwich-nibbling lunchers and sun-loving loungers know that just a few feet from where they're sitting, an over-emotional employee brutally gunned down his backstabbing boss. Situated on the south side of Soho Square and the northwest corner of Greek Street sits 27 Soho Square, an eight-storey redstone building known as Nascrino House, part of which currently occupies the Soho branch of Barclays Bank. Before its demolition in 1938, 27 Soho Square was originally a grand four-storey townhouse built in 1803, whose previous inhabitants included such luminaries as Viscount de Longueville, the second Earl of Plymouth, the first Earl of Tankerville, the fourth Earl of Dundonald, Lord Fitzwilliam, Sir Francis Knollys, and a whole host of upper-class twits and Oxbridge knobs who practically no one has ever heard of, and all of whom almost certainly had butlers, maids and servants. But by 1933, five years before its demolition, 27 Soho Square was once a very upmarket West End restaurant called Bellametti's, with the first floor reserved for its posh patrons, whose five-course meal was served on immaculate white linen tablecloths, fine bone china and crystal wine glasses by silver service waiters in starched shirts and dicky bows. The ground floor hosted an ornate guest reception up front, a drab dreary staff entrance out back, a scullery for the servers, a laundry for the maids, and a winery for the head waiter. And yet in the basement was the kitchen, whose head chef, called Boleslav Pankorsky, was a hot-tempered perfectionist who always looked down on his mild-mannered but effortlessly lazy dishwasher, Von Avros and Talker. Like most upmarket eateries in the West End, although it was housed in a single building, Bellametti's restaurant comprised of two very different worlds, an upstairs and a downstairs, which divided the diners from the staff, the rich from the poor, with the customers only seeing a very elegant facade of wealth, style and tranquillity. As just two floors below, stuck in a cramped kitchen buried in the bowels of the basement, it was anything but. Head chef at Bellametti's was 37-year-old Boleslav Pankorsky, known as Paul, who had only worked at the restaurant for 18 months but had greatly impressed Mr. Morgan, the chairman, with his culinary skills, his creative flair, his impeccable timing, and his ruthless efficiency. Born in Lotz, Poland, on the 23rd of March, 1897, Paul came from a family of highly respected Polish chefs, who was partway through an apprenticeship when the First World War broke out. Aged just 17, Paul was one of many Polish youths 
who both bravely and thanklessly enlisted in the British Army to fight off the German invasion and served as a private in the Middlesex Regiment's 4th Battalion, stationed in Boulogne-sur-Mer and Le Havre on the Western Front, and later in India and Egypt. Although he was a cook, not a soldier, the sights Paul witnessed on the muddy battlefields in France, the bombs, the bodies and the blood, had not only mentally scarred him, turning a timid boy into a serious man, but seeing the soldiers return to their waterlogged trenches, tired, wet and traumatised, never knowing which day would be their last, he knew their lives relied on one certainty, food. As a good solid meal, served on time, can go a long way to making his shell-shocked comrades feel human again. At Bellametti's restaurant, Paul ran his kitchen like a well-oiled machine, using the military precision he had honed in the war. And even though this cramped basement was a cacophony of noise, smoke and steam, every surface was spotless, every jar was labelled, every waste bin was empty and every meal was served on time, lightly seasoned and cooked to perfection. With the kitchen as his battleground, Paul would bark orders like a general going to war, surrounded by his loyal troops, ranking all the way up from his sous-chef right down to the lowly dishwasher, all of whom he hoped had a mindset like his own, and saw the preparation of meals as their mission. But sadly, this wasn't always the case. 31-year-old Varnavros Antorka had been in service at Bellametti's for 18 months, having been hired at the same time as his head chef, but hadn't been hired by Paul himself. Although gifted the fancy title of silver washer, Varna was a humble dishwasher, the second lowest ranking staff member, who'd spend his days scrubbing plates, pots and pans for long hours, little pay, and rarely a please or a thank you. And although Paul and Varna worked side by side for many months, both men were very different. Born in Nicosia, Cyprus, in 1902, Varna grew up in the shadow of the First World War, and although he was too young to enlist, as a Greek Cypriot, it was his home that was the war zone. With Cyprus, under British military occupation, effectively from 1878 all the way up to 1960. The capital city of Nicosia, like the rest of the country itself, was ethnically divided in its struggle for independence from the United Kingdom, with the Christians aligning with Greece and the Muslims with Turkey. So dangerous and deadly had Nicosia become, that one of the city's main thoroughfares was given a nickname that we still use today to describe a road synonymous with death, as Ledra Street truly was the first place in the world ever to be dubbed the Murder Mile. By 1925, with rioting, looting and bombing ravaging a city in chaos, and having been burdened by heavy taxation, widespread poverty and rampant disease, 
Varna, with his parents' blessing, took what little money, food and possessions he had, boarded a ship and set sail for America. Having escaped the horrors of his homeland, Varna and his younger brother were quick to embrace the fun and the frolics of the free world. Soaking up the bright lights of Boston and the non-stop bustle of New York, and even though they lived simply, surviving on a meagre income as busboys and bottle washers, they always had fun, ate well, drank hard, and never forgot to send regular letters home to their beloved mother, telling her tales, wishing her well, and always enclosing a few dollars. After five years in America, and eager to explore the rest of the world, Varna and his brother moved to London, rented a flat on Arthur Street, fell in love with the West End, and funded their nightlife and cash-filled letters home by working menial jobs for just one pound and fifteen shillings a week. Described as quiet, polite and inoffensive, and a man of good character who got on well with his colleagues, Varna was fun-loving, diligent and honest. But as a lowly dishwasher who wanted to see the world, and yet spent the bulk of his days staring at a kitchen wall with his hands in soapy water, he'd often daydream and be berated by Paul for his slow speed and his tardiness. Friday the 12th of May 1933 was no exception. As lacking Paul's military precision and punctuality, once again, after a heavy night of boozing and boogieing, Varna slowly ambled into work a full 20 minutes late, which in most cases is no great crime. But with the guests getting seated, the lunch orders looming, and the head chef's meticulous system already in chaos owing to a backlog of spotty pots and dirty dishes, Varna's lateness was the last straw for Paul and he was sacked on the spot. Varna's dismissal by Paul at roughly 12.45pm wasn't witnessed by any of the staff. Therefore, what was said between the two men at that moment is lost to the mists of time. But given Paul's demanding and domineering manner, mixed with Varna's mild-mannered and softly spoken way, this sacking clearly didn't go as simply as Paul had suspected it would, as something had lit a fire under Varna's backside. He was angry, furious and seething at the loss of this unskilled dead-end job that he didn't much care for and could easily acquire anywhere else. So those missing few minutes of heated debate between the two men are vital to understand Varna's misguided mindset. Maybe he was broke and struggling to fund his family overseas in an increasingly volatile and hostile country. Maybe he hated being berated by this bully boy head chef, who had always wanted him out. Or maybe, deep down, he truly loved the life, and most importantly the money, of a daydreaming dishwasher. Either way, this is something that we shall never know. Coming from a good family, with a good education, 
no police record, no criminal convictions. By 1pm, Varner had dashed back to his lodgings at 19 Arthur Street, now known as Earnshaw Street at the back of Denmark Place, and hastily raced up the wooden stairs to his top floor flat, where he was heard rummaging in his drawers by Louisa Mutty, his landlady, who said that on that day, he was uncharacteristically impatient, rude and flustered. At 1.05pm, as Varner dashed the five minutes back to Soho Square, with his right hand hidden inside his jacket, Paul was upstairs in the supper room of Bellametti's, receiving his weekly wage from Arthur Cecil Morgan, chairman of the restaurant, and informing him of Varner's dismissal, which Mr Morgan didn't need to know about, nor did he care about, and as briskly as it had begun, their conversation was over. At 1.08pm, witnessed by the wine butler, James Sidney Bryce, who was standing in the ground floor passageway, a drab and drafty staff entrance which led to Soho Square, Varna burst in. Breathlessly standing on the hall's bare floorboards, his sweaty face was edged with anger as deep shadows were cast by the bare single light bulb above. At that moment, accompanied by William Summers, a waiter, Paul strolled across the first floor landing, his feet thudding down the wooden stairs, and as he neared the bottom, he was met by Varna's furious eyes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. With his unusually angry voice echoing off the hall's bare walls, Varna barked, You sat me, you bastard! And grabbing the chef's white serviette, which hung around Paul's neck, he spat, Take me back, or I shoot! Unsure what he meant, Paul looked down, and saw that in his right hand, Varna held a thirty-two caliber Smith & Weston five-shot revolver, which was aimed squarely at his chest. Instinctively, As both Paul and William Summers grabbed his right arm and wrist to wrestle the loaded gun away, Varna clutched at Paul's throat with his free left hand and started to strangle him. But being unable to catch his breath, the more Paul lost consciousness, the more he lessened his grip on Varna's arm. And with the constant toing and froing of the firearm, before anyone knew what had happened, Varna had fired. As an ominous silence gripped the hall, Paul fell to his knees like a sack of spuds and slumped against the wooden wine boxes. His face ghostly white as blood poured from the left of his chest, soaking his chef's white with a vivid red which pulled around his heart. Varna took a step back, His breathing was deep and erratic, not quite believing what he'd done. But his shock was short-lived, as feeling his rage rise once again, Varna venomously spat the words, Bloody bastard! towards his kneeling and bleeding boss, and fired once more a shot which ripped right through his stomach. Having heard the shots from the restaurant, Headwaiters Giuseppe Nagari and Mitchell Kakilaru dashed down the stairs to put a stop to this unseemly fracas, as two waiters and now two headwaiters tried to wrestle the gun free, as once again Varna took aim at his dying foe. But as Mitchell 
an innocent bystander, who did no beef with the angry dishwasher, darted upstairs to inform Mr. Morgan of the incident. Varner fired once again. And although he had aimed downwards, towards the fearful head of the slumped chef, the third bullet missed its target, nicked the defensively splayed fingers of Paul's right hand, and mysteriously missing his head entirely. The 32 caliber projectile ricocheted off the hardwood floor, and at a practically impossible 70 degree angle, it hit Mitchell one floor above. With Bryce having disarmed Varner and cast aside the smoking hot steel of the revolver into a discarded pile of wine boxes, as Varner was subdued, Bryce ran to get a passing policeman, PC Walter Middleton, who quickly placed the angry Cypriot dishwasher under arrest. Drifting in and out of consciousness and badly losing blood, Paul was laid on the floor, his tie loosened as the staff awaited the arrival of the ambulanceman, who during 1930s London, in the days before paramedics, were little more than glorified van drivers and were less than useless. Headwaiter Mitchell Kikilaru was driven with Paul to the Middlesex Hospital, having been shot in the calf of his left leg. But with the bullet fragment having missed his bones and all the veins and vital arteries, Mitchell's flesh wound was dressed, and being the type of conscientious ex-military man who Paul had admired, he returned to work that very same day, apologising profusely for the bullet hole in his trousers. Sadly, although Paul received the best medical treatment of the day, he remained in critical condition at the Middlesex Hospital for two days. But on Sunday the 14th of May at 11.35am, 37-year-old Boleslaw Paul Pankorski, head chef at Bellametti's, died of his injuries, leaving behind a wife and three children. His autopsy was conducted that evening by the Home Office Chief Pathologist, Sir Bernard Spilsbury, who concluded that, although the first bullet had entered Paul's chest without breaking any ribs, had passed right through his left lung, his heart, and had embedded itself in his right lung, it was the second bullet which killed him. As having been shot in the stomach, the bullet had pierced his abdominal wall and small intestine, resulting in acute peritonitis. A simple bacterial infection which can cause multiple organ failure if left untreated and is easily cured by the kind of broad-spectrum antibiotics commonly available from your doctor today, which sadly, in 1933, was yet to be discovered. Varna was taken to the Great Marlborough Street Police Station, just north of Carnaby Street, where he was cautioned, arrested, read his rights, and interviewed by Detective Inspector Clarence Campion, where he made this statement. He said, I tell you the truth. He grumble at me minutes before. I go home, and I get gun. I come back to restaurant, and I say to him, You have five minutes to live. He say, You are finished. I say, Do not say I am finished. He say, Yes. 
I shoot him. I do not know what happened after I lose my temper. Later ironically adding, I did not mean to hurt him. Varner was tried at the Old Bailey before the brutally obstinate Mr Justice Humphreys on the 30th of June 1933, barely six weeks later, where he pleaded not guilty to the charge of murder. In his defence, he pleaded that he had no intention to kill Boleslaw Paul Pankorsky. Instead, his ill-thought-out and badly executed plan was to threaten the chef with the loaded revolver with the hope that he would become so frightened that Paul would instantly give Varna his job back. The jury deliberated for just 45 minutes, not because the evidence against him was so overwhelming, but because the judge, Mr Justice Humphreys, had refused to give the jurors an option to find Varna either guilty or not guilty of the lesser charge of manslaughter. Therefore, on the charge that Varner had feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did kill and murder Boleslav Pankorsky, and that he did feloniously, willfully, and of his malice aforethought, did wound the head waiter, Mitchell Kikilaru, by shooting him with a revolver with the intent to do him grievous bodily harm. Even though the police had confirmed he was wounded by the entirely accidental ricochet of a bullet, Varner was found guilty of both counts. And although the foreman of the jury recommended a plea of mercy, as all 12 jurymen felt that the murder of Boleslav Pankorsky was not premeditated, a crime which warrants a life sentence or less, Mr Justice Humphreys made no comment towards their plea. And donning his black cap, he sentenced 31-year-old Varnavros Antorka to death. The final days of Varna, the Greek Cypriot dishwasher, who had escaped his war-torn country with the hope of bettering himself, funding his impoverished family and seeing the world, was spent in solitary confinement on A-Wing, in the first floor of London's Pentonville prison, staring at the cold stone walls of his lonely cell. Being basic, the condemned man's cell consisted of a bed, a table, three chairs, and at the far end of the room, a large wooden wardrobe, as well as a bathroom and a separate room for the prisoner to receive guests. Sadly, although he would continue to write many a loving letter home, the only guest that Varna received was his younger brother. As being too poor to travel, his worried parents could never visit him. In this cell, it was here that he sat, slept, ate, prayed and waited, always under a guard's personal supervision and never once knowing that he was just 15 feet from the gallows which would ultimately kill him. On the bright crisp morning of Thursday the 10th of August 1933, having struggled to eat his last meal of tea and toast, and having been read his last rites by a Catholic priest, Varna sat in his cell, the two other chairs occupied by the guards who sat either side of him, in hushed silence. There were no sounds, no words, and no clocks. 
Only the deep rasp of his petrified breath and the erratic beat of his heart. With a nod of the governor's head, as the hour struck, there was a quick clank of keys, the steel cell door opened, and with the swiftness of a younger man, in rushed a mid-fifties gentleman in a simple black suit, who looked out of place and yet said nothing. He was the infamous hangman, Robert Baxter, a protégé of the legendary executioner Albert Pierpoint, who was flanked by a priest and his assistant, Alfred Allen. Like Pierpoint, Baxter and Allen were great believers that as barbaric as capital punishment was, that an execution needn't be a sadistic spectacle where the prisoner's agony is prolonged. Instead, each prisoner was dispatched in a way which was the epitome of swift, professional and painless. Pulling Varner to his feet, as the guards moved the chairs to one side, Baxter secured the prisoner's wrists behind his back with suede-lined shackles. With the velvety soft material added to stop any pinching of the skin and causing the condemned to flinch during this critical moment. Once secured, the large wooden wardrobe, which was deliberately positioned behind the prisoner and hence out of view, was slid to the left, so that only at the very last moment would Varner see that behind this wardrobe was a secret door leading to the execution chamber. It was a cold stone room, with the walls painted a subtle pale green. In the dead centre of the floor was a trap door comprising of two leaves, each eight and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide, with a large metal lever to the left and dangling from a beam above, at head height, was the noose. As Varner was quickly ushered the ten short paces into the execution chamber, his feet never once tripping or scuffing on the deliberately smooth floor, he was positioned onto a white chalk mark in the middle of the trapdoors, and as Alfred Allen secured his feet, the last sight that Varner saw was not Paris as he had planned, Rome as he had wanted, or even the smiling face of his beloved mother back in his hometown of Nicosia as he had dreamed, but instead it was the emotionless face of hangman Robert Baxter, pulling a white cotton sack over Varner's head. And having secured the leather-lined noose, with a yank of the lever, a swing of the trapdoors, the drop of his body and the swift snap to the right of his neck, with two vertebrae broken, Varna was dead. His body was buried in an unmarked grave on the grounds of Pentonville Prison, where he remains to this day. Having been executed by Master Hangman Robert Baxter, the time from when the cell door opened to the moment that Varna was dangling at the end of a rope dead was just 15 seconds. He would have felt no pain, he might have shed no tears, and he may not have uttered any last words. As it all happened so fast, he may not have known what had happened until the deadly deed was done. And yet, 
as cruel as capital punishment may be, one question still baffles my brain, and it's this. Given how slick, quick and truly professional this hanging was, would Boleslaw Paul Pankorski, the head waiter of Bellametti's restaurant at 24 Soho Square, who had survived the horrors of the First World War and yet ran his kitchen with military precision, would he have been truly appalled at the senseless death of this lowly dishwasher? Or would he have admired, and maybe even smiled, at its ruthless efficiency? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. If you're thinking, hmm, Surely there's some really interesting cases based in Soho, which I think Michael hasn't done a podcast about yet. Well, you're absolutely right. Although I have literally hundreds of amazing murders still to tell you about in this podcast, many of my favourites are reserved solely for my infamous Murder Mile Walk, which takes place in the West End every Sunday. So if you're in London soon, why not book a ticket and see the murder locations in the flesh. Don't forget to check out my blog for more photos, videos and maps surrounding this case and all other episodes by going to my website murdermiletours.com forward slash blog and check out the Murder Mile podcast on Facebook, Twitter and Pinterest. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Next week's episode is the baffling case of the seaman, the seaman, and the porn peddler. Thank you, and sleep well.